You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR broadcasts on the sovereign land of the Wurrung people and the Bunurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to the Monday Breakfast Show. You're tuned into 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I'm Ella, and I hope you'll enjoy a weekend of good news. We've continued our streak of zero cases here in Melbourne. Dan Andrews' ring of steel has been lifted, and as of today, we can travel into regional Vic, which I intend to make the most of. Come 8.30, I'll be heading straight from the 3CR studios to the Mornington Peninsula. Then, over in the US... While it may not stop him trying, there is no denying Donald Trump has lost the election. It's a bit of a nail-biter there for a while, but we can all now breathe a sigh of relief. And today marks the second day of the 2020 NADOC week. This year's theme of Always Was, Always Will Be recognises that First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for over 65,000 years. The Monday Brekkie team are very excited to be back in the 3CR studios for the first time in a long time. And I'll show you this morning, we'll be celebrating Australia's First Nations people. We've got a full house at the studios this morning. Socially distanced, of course, we'll be rotating the team throughout the morning. So let's take a look at what we've got in store. First up, Claudia speaks to Candice LeRae, one half of the popular electronic pop R&B soul sister duo, The Marindas and curator of a special NADOC Week Isolate event held this Saturday evening. We'll also be hearing about the Australian music industry from an Indigenous perspective. Next up, we're very happy to have Judith Peppard back with Monday Brekkie for today. She's bringing us a conversation with researcher and author Michael Nest about Cold Case North, a book that investigates the disappearance of two Canadian Indigenous activists over 50 years ago, and new efforts to find out what happened to them. Then I'll take a moment to remember King Baraga, Joe Anderson, an activist, leader and proud Aboriginal man who used film and the cinema to demand recognition for his people. And we'll listen to a recording of him doing just that. After that, Patty revisits a conversation with Palawa man Damien Webb about Eight Days in Kamai, a digital exhibition curated by the State Library of New South Wales, narrating the arrival of Captain Cook through the eyes of First Australians. And to finish up the show, Judith will be revisiting an interview she did with Chris Kaneen, a professor in criminology at the University of Technology, Sydney, on the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in Australia from 10 to 14 years of age. Last week, the new Labor Greens ACT government announced its plans to introduce that legislation in its next parliamentary sitting. Well, it's a busy morning, so let's get stuck into it. We're going to kick off with a song from the Marindas, Before Daylight. When we come back, Claudia will be talking to Candice LeRae about Isolade's NADOC Week music event. Stay tuned.
It's so nice to be back in the studio. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm Claudia, and um, I'd like to just say a special thank you to listeners for sticking around over the past months that we've been producing the show from home. It's made a real difference to know that you are out there listening to the content that we deliver and inspiring us to keep going through what has been a, a difficult time for nearly all of us, I think. 
The song you just heard was Before Daylight by the Marindas. And for those of you who are new to the Marindas, the Marindas is a two-person soul sister band incorporating electronic pop, R&B and Indigenous language elements into their music. I was fortunate enough a few days ago to speak with Candice LeRae. She's one half of the Marindas duo, a descendant of the Jowan people up in Catherine. Beautiful place. And Torres Strait Islander. She's spent most of her growing up in Perth and now lives in Melbourne where she's curating the ISOL Aid NADOC Week music event uh, that is about to kick off this Saturday the 14th of November. And uh, as I said, I spoke to her a few days ago as she was preparing for the event and this is what she had to say. Welcome, Candice, and thank you so much for talking to us on 3CR. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here and really excited for the NADOC week ahead. It is exciting. And, uh, you know, after the event being postponed it now feels like this is when it's supposed to be so um i'm sure yeah everyone and, now. <laughs> and it's funny because like a, actually events took place in the you know traditional nadoc week in july mm. and um you know it just kind of feels like we get two nadoc weeks this year which is wonderful <laughs> And I think it's kind of nice in Victoria as we're coming out of the lockdown because it sort of feels like it's nice to be able to uh, be really positive while we're... Beautiful start to enter into the world again <laughs> with First Nations music and arts and, um, yeah, with, with NADOC. It's something very special. So tell us first what is ISOL Aid and then we'll move on to the NADOC special. Yeah, sure. So ISOL Aid has been a festival... Um, uh, that's been running since lockdown and um, from what I've seen as an artist on the outside it was very supportive and active in getting musicians to keep playing um, virtually and also it was a way to to support the organization support act which essentially um, they're there for any artists that uh, that are uh, needing any financial assistance or or counseling in this time so it was a really good way I guess for Isolade to to bring those artists giving them a platform to keep playing music and promoting their works but also yeah helping support act and and um, some um, I think there's been a few other charities that's um, come on board as well and for all of us to raise money and, and really work together like as a community in this time um, and I think it's been in a, a been a, like a live event running pretty much every weekend I've, I've been seeing it and I've only just been asked to curate this show especially for NADOC so yeah it's um just really exciting Isolade's been great. So tell us about the NADOC week show that you've been working on. Yeah, so it's I've been lucky enough for the city of Port Phillip to um, bring me on board with this. They're they're partnering with this event, I believe, and uh, the focus, I guess, was to try and get a a national based um, First Nations lineup. Um, so that's coming from Perth originally, from the West Coast. Um, it was a lot easier for me to kind of get a lot of um, acts from over the West Coast onto the lineup finally because uh, there's been a lot of East Coast attraction, I guess, with the Isolated lineup. And there's been a few WA acts, but I'm really excited to pull um, acts like Struggling Kings, um, Lyrical Instinct and Book's Kid. And, you know, they're just some of the West Australian artists that I've programmed. 
and also we have Welcome to Country by Annie Carolyn Briggs. And then we've got some wonderful um, Melbourne talent like uh, Monica Caro, Dia Mithada, who's going to open up with this beautiful dance. I don't know if anyone's been seeing his dancing online. Um, I just thought it, it, this lineup would not be complete without him. Um, but also the Marindas are playing. I mean, my sister girl, Christelle, and as well as Bumpy. And to finish off, I just thought, Dobby. Dobby's our guy. Like he, he just really lights the stage and he's um, been so strong within the, the community and in music. And we, I just love the lyrics and his songs and the way that he stands and speak, you know, as a first nations man in music, like, yeah, he's just got really something to offer. So I'm really happy to have this, this whole lineup is really quite exciting. And uh, it's unfortunate that we couldn't get more on the list, but everyone's quite busy through NAIDOC. <laughs> Yes, that's the case, isn't it? Which is great. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm kind of interested in is there seems to be developing more of a trend for organisations like Big Sound um, to focus on First Nations artists and recognise that some of the the foundations and support need to be strengthened. What are some of the areas that you, in your opinion, feel could be strengthened? Mm. I think at this point in time there's so many talent so much first nations talent coming out of the woodworks and like never before um when i started at 16 which was about 20 years ago um <laughs> there 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 wasn't as many first nations um artists especially on in a commercial sense but now um i think with the number of artists i think as as an industry we need to really build that space you know build more platforms and collaborate a lot more with with the industry in um having first nations representation in all and everything in all stations um in all programs you know and at the same time you know we need to strengthen our industry in a sense that we uh, we do have a first nations music industry right now and i think we just need to take ownership of that and really start to drive that as well yeah are there challenges within First Nations music community itself? Yeah, I guess it's um, just trying to get onto those platforms and changing the attitudes and of um, the the industry that stands there now. Uh, and um, over over time, it has been changing. And I think um, as a collective, as a First Nations music industry we're now just starting to work together a lot more as artists. So there's been a lot more discussions and meetings uh, and what we can do as far as events or changing the industry, um, forming our, um, forming almost like a, just a stronger community, like um, with the wonderful, you know, COVID bringing us into Zoom. (laughs) It's been really good over this time to be in so many meetings now. We've all had the time to connect so I think that's really given us a push to strengthen that industry that we have right now because the industry is still dominated by non-indigenous players yeah really at an organizational level yeah I think it's been tricky because we're um kind of at the bottom you know Australia's um what I've just learned recently Australia's really fighting to support Australian music, you know, because we have a lot of music coming in overseas and it's always a struggle just to even get Australian music um, to be, to build that. So, you know, and then it's First Nations Act, so we're just kind of just fitting in there. 
I'd like to see us working together and connecting with the the non-Indigenous music industry more um, and being really inclusive and understanding, bringing that reconciliation in, into it. I think that um, a lot of across the industry, um, I guess in all sectors, um, First Nations people need to be invited in and have a place within, um, you know, particular areas in I guess supporting and nurturing First Nations music, and um, and so that there's a voice in 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 every industry to say yes, we want First Nations people working here. If not, how can we get them? How can we mentor young people into um, into the industry and and helping um, support that First Nations music? You know, and making sure that it's um, respected and and looked after the way that you know it deserves to be deserves to be looked after. So a more active approach. Yeah, being um, it's it's always really hard molding the two worlds together because it's um, it's so far apart from each other. Um, and do you find yeah, yeah. that you still come across people within your industry who don't have a, a very deep understanding of indigenous uh, culture and perspectives? Yeah, I. Um, I come across it quite a bit, um, but it happens so much that um, we just just let it ride. Like, you know, I'm a pretty relaxed person, um, you know, but I'll talk about things with my friends, <laughs> especially me and Christelle. We'll have a lot to talk about, um, you know, and it's really good to have that support of First Nations mob within the industry to yarn to about, oh, my God, I just had this discussion with this guy and, um <laughs> so yeah it's um it, it's really good that um we can that we're getting more um first nations people working within the industry so then us artists have um a support network there absolutely um, i guess it would be great though if some of those conversations could be had out in the open and mm, you're able to yeah. feel comfortable to have them because i think we talk a lot about inclusivity but it's not just about being physically present and feeling physically safe. It's also feeling comfortable to express yourself, not just through your music, but um, in terms of what's important to you as a performer or an industry, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I was interested in the mental health side of things. The music industries obviously was struck very hard by the COVID pandemic and, you know, really dipped out badly in terms of government relief. But I wondered um, how, in particular, whether performers, uh, First Nations performers, were affected in ways that the average Australian and listener might not realise. Yeah, I, th- I think everyone's affected in different ways. Um, there's people um, that have the know-about to to how to access funding and stuff like that. Like myself, when it happened, I was lucky enough to um, get on top of um, all the offerings that were coming in for funding, um, for adapting your your music and what you do at home. So I was able to um, upgrade all my gear at home and start keep creating music and also doing performances in my living room. Um, it's been the most fun thing, but keeping busy like that has helped me. But I know a lot of artists have been struggling in the way they haven't been able to access the funding. So um, I think it's changing people's 
perspective to look at how they're going to approach their music now. And um, I think a lot of different music is coming out now. So if, you know, a lot of artists that might've been working on something have decided to swing a total different way now because of that different perspective. I know that we have as the Marinders, we're changing a lot of our style now to, because all of our music's made from home. We're not really, um, you know, in the studios and connecting and working with other producers. Now we're doing it ourselves. So our, our, sound is changing um so there is a increase of change of sound and also more artists have popped out all of a sudden because i think that people have had the time so it just it's affected everybody so differently yeah i i, I most of the feedback that i get from all of my colleagues and that has been really positive they're kind of grateful for the time that they've mm. had that's interesting yeah. And connecting with country too, a lot of them I've been able to just kind of breathe a little bit and mm-hmm. connect back with home and um, giving them time to dig more into their family roots and stuff I have as well. You know, it's just been a wonderful time actually. That was Candice LeRae talking about the NADOT Week ISOL Aid event organised in conjunction with the City of Port Phillip, kicking off 5pm this Saturday, 14th of November, streaming live from Instagram at Isolade Festival, I-S-O-L-A-I-D Festival. And check out the rest of Port Phillip's NADOC Week events at www.portphillip.vic.gov.au or Google Port Phillip NADOC Week 2020. There is so much going on uh, for everyone. Uh, you don't have to be living in Port Phillip to join in. Music, meditation with Jack Davis, uh, comic acts, and even finding out about what Indigenous food plants are growing Bayside with a local Indigenous food grower. So that will be running all week uh, for NADOC week. Now we're going to go to a song called My Mind by Dobby. And when we come back, Judith will be talking to us in the studio here with me to share a story about the disappearance of two Canadian Indigenous activists over 50 years ago. She'll be talking with author Michael Nest about Cold Case North, that's the name of the book, investigating the two missing persons and new efforts to find out what happened to them. So stay tuned and we'll be back with that shortly. Here's Dobby. Shine in the middle of the daylight, living in 
riders bluff recycled all my old ideas. Old ideas. Brain in the vine, done settling. Feel it rattling in my skeleton. Travel all the way to my melanin. Paranoid, think you're relevant. Kick your melanin. Fingers in a million pies. Trying to live a million lives. Everyone dies. Think another window went by. Guess I gotta keep it in mind. Got a funny feeling inside. Meaning I don't really feel right. Stuck in my thoughts. I've been really busy and tired. You can make the video live. Is it my time? My brother, my brother. My brother, my brother. My titter, my titter. My titter, my titter. My sister, girl. My brother, my brother. You're invincible. My brother, my brother. You against the world. My titter, my titter. My sister, girl. My titter. Hey. My brother, my brother. Been working so hard all day. To come here and live in my mind. I've been having trouble sleeping at night. Second guessing always eat up my life. So ironic, I don't feel like I'm eating right. Working up late till the beat is right. Till desire to boogie's a piece of pie. Till I satisfy every blood people buy. Yeah. Got my damn feet up. I can feel the pressure. Better get my sangria. People tell me, listen to me, Dobby. They've been looking for somebody that can bring us all together. Pangea. The fella storytelling Azar. Talk about my skin at Nadar. Cousin, put away that face wash and get up and dance. Nah, shame job. Got my nephew producing it, ayy. Wanted to check what he do with it, ayy. Everyone listening, losing it, y'all. And I should mention he new to it, ayy. Rocko Filipino, photogenic. How you growing up and told already? Know yourself, brother, don't forget it. If you really got a dream, then go and get it. Cause they get butt hurt like Tabasco. I'm about to rip up the dance flow. I know my story, I let it tell him through my dance moves and my cerebellum. Through my voice box and my focus. Hoping all of them would notice. And I won't quit till my throat gives. Till my lungs die, till there's no spit. My brother, my brother, my brother, my brother, my titter, my titter, my titter, my titter, my sister, girl, my brother, my brother, you're invincible, my brother, my brother, you against the world, my titter, my titter, my sister, girl, my titter, yeah, my brother, my brother, been working so hard all day, my titter, my titter, been working so hard all day, with the mind. Now we have Judith in the studio. And it's so much fun to be here and to see your face, Claudia, and to see Patty's face. And for all the people listening out there, it's wonderful to have you with us here on 3CR this morning, this Monday morning. We've got Alice and Ella waving from the adjacent studio because we've got COVID-safe restrictions on how Many people can be in this studio uh, at the same time. so But they'll be coming in to take over. That's right. That's why you're hearing well, uh, yeah, just a few of our voices at a time. We're sort of musical chairs this morning, aren't we? We are. What have you got for us this morning, Judith? Well, it's a story about a cold case in Canada. It kind of brings together my Canadian and Australian connections here. But I think before I begin, I, I should give a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening, because the next story is about the disappearance and, and deaths of two Canadian Indigenous activists. So just to, to let you know, there's there's some sadness in it, but also it's, uh, yeah, wonderful men. So it's, it's going to be great to hear more about their lives. I'm speaking with Michael Nest. Now, Michael's an Australian freelance researcher and author, and he's worked with communities in Africa, in the Congo area, 
and investigating injustice and wrongdoing by mining companies. So that's his background. But in the last few years, he's been in Canada working on this new investigation of the disappearance of Canadian Indigenous activists, Métis leader James Brady and Cree band councillor Absalom Halkett. And as uh, you said, this happened in 1967, so over 50 years ago, and never been resolved. So the new investigation was instigated by Deanna Redder, who's a Cree Métis academic at Simon Fraser University in Canada, and Eric Bell, a member of the Lac Larange Indian Band and the owner of Lac Larange Emergency Medical Services. And he's also a trained um, camp person leader. He knows the, the country well. So those are the three people who came together to look again into this case. The book, Cold Case North, which comes out this week, tells the story of that investigation and what they found, but we can't reveal everything this morning. When I spoke to Michael Ness last week, the first thing I wanted to know was how did an Australian become involved in a 50-year-old cold case in Canada? I had literally been in Canada three days when a colleague uh, called me and she sketched out the history of these two activists, James Brady and Absalom Holcott, and said that long-held rumours had been white business partners with them in a mining company had wanted to push them out of the company and had conspired against them to have them disappeared, so to have them murdered. And because of that connection through my previous work around corruption and wrongdoing in mining, she asked if I'd like to be involved. I did have to think about it because, you know, you can really raise expectations about family members, about what you will find and the consequences of that for them. But also, if you don't find something, it can be similarly traumatizing having raised their hopes. So Deanna, my colleague, uh, the one who invited me into the project and I, we talked about it a lot, but I very quickly decided that it was a, a really interesting and fascinating project. I understand also, you know, you're working with Indigenous communities and Deanna is a Cree Métis woman, very well-respected academic in English and Indigenous studies at Simon Fraser University. But just for people who won't know, Tell us what happened in 1967. Well, let me start with the two men. So James Brady or Jim Brady and Absalom Helcott or Abby Helcott. James Brady was a very well-known Indigenous activist in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s in Canada. And he was famous for the work that he did to have Métis people in Canada recognised by the governments of Alberta and Saskatchewan. But he also had a later chapter in his activist life of working with Indigenous people to establish and run Indigenous-owned and managed co-ops around the fur trade, around fishing, around timber. I understand he was also an amazing scholar. Yes, that's right. He had an enormous private collection of books, around three to 4,000 books, which is really incredible for somebody in Saskatchewan at that time. And he was known as being a source of ideas, a lender of books to other people in the community. And effectively, he was a bridge between the outside world and this small community of La Ronge, but also the, the more widespread Indigenous community in northern Saskatchewan. So people came to him to seek his advice. But because of his activist work. He was also famous as being a communist. Communists were under surveillance in Canada all the way through the 1960s. Those things meant that he had enemies. He had enemies in big business because he wanted to create co-ops that would undermine big business. He had enemies in the church because he was secular and a communist. And he had enemies in politics because he wanted the government to change its policies towards Indigenous people, including allocating land. His colleague, Abby Helcott, 
effectively did what James Brady did, but at a much more local level for his specific community. So his daily life as a band councillor, it would be the equivalent of a, um, a local Aboriginal land council, a chair, for example, would have been focused on health issues, education and housing. Jim Brady and Abby Helcott had seasonal workers prospectors. So in 1967, the two of them together went on a, a journey to prospect for uranium at a very isolated lake in northern Saskatchewan, which is effectively the subarctic. They totally vanished from their campsite. Now, it's factually true they were dropped off at the wrong lake. So that immediately raises a question about how could this happen? Who was the pilot who dropped them off? Was he told to drop them off at the wrong lake? They did set up camp. We can never know whether they knew that they were at the wrong lake or not, but their boss went to look for them nine days later to bring them fresh food supplies. So he went to the lake they were supposed to be at. They were not there. He then went up into the air in a plane, circled around, noticed that they were at another lake some distance away, landed, saw the camp. There was still bread and butter in the tent. The tent door was open. The two men had totally vanished. So it was really like they'd been taken by UFOs. They left no trace at all. There were some tiny clues, which the police later investigated but it just became this huge mystery so this was back in 1967 so the police investigated would this have been the royal canadian mounted police the rcmp or would it have been local police the rcmp the royal canadian mounted police have responsibility for northern saskatchewan and all affairs related to the community when jim and abby's boss put up the alarm and said that they're missing. The police came in and did their formal search, but there was this outpouring of private support for the two men. So dozens and dozens of people went into the area. So they were flown in by floodplain, they travelled by canoe, they travelled on foot to look for them. And that private part of the search went on for two months about six weeks after the official search actually ended. I find this such a moving story. And just hearing you say those things touches me again, because I can imagine the friends and family wanting so much to find their loved one. That's right. And I think the fact of the vanishing and the speculation around them being murdered by business partners or possibly it was some kind of political assassination of Jim Brady because of his status as an activist. And in the book, we explore all of this and really unpack those theories. The rumours have really bubbled away for 50 years. You know, when I was asked, oh, what are you doing in Saskatchewan? You sound, you sound like you're from somewhere else. And I'd say, I'm Australian. And I'd say, and what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm investigating the disappearance of an anti-activist called Jim Brady. The response was, Jim Brady. You know, older people know very well this story. And it's sheer mysteriousness of it and what happened. So obviously the investigation ended. and It's a cold case because there's no resolution. But I understand that this new look at the case was the result of a promise. That's right. The two research partners in the project are Deanna Rader, who's the professor at Simon Fraser University, and her cousin, Eric Bell. So he lives in the town of La Ronge, where all the action takes place back in 1967, but also today in terms of our comings and goings. Together, they have an uncle called Frank Tompkins, who we refer to as Uncle Frank. So Uncle Frank had hung on to this theory for 52 years that they had not gotten lost in the bush, which was the theory of the police. Frank Tompkins said that is complete nonsense. Something has to be done about it. And when Deanna went back to university late and became a professor and he found out that she was capable of doing research, he called her not long before he died and he said that you have to resolve this. Promise me that you will investigate this and promise me you'll get to the bottom of what happened. And so a promise was made. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Michael Nest, one of the authors of Cold Case North, 
a book about a new investigation of the disappearance of two Indigenous activists, James Brady and Abby Halkett, in Canada's Northwest over 50 years ago. I asked Michael to tell me more about Eric Bell, the third author of the book, a member of the Lac Larange Indian Band, and owner of Lac Larange Emergency Medical Services, and also a trained National Parks warden. I mean, we just could not have done that without him because he's lived in the community more or less all of his life. He knows nearly all of the families that are implicated in some way in the story. He went to school with some of their children, but he also has this amazing set of outdoor skills. I did a lot of the paper-based research trying to look for business connections between the white business partners and Jim Brady and Abby Olcott. We pursued other links. There had been a series of interviews done of people who were involved in the original search back in 1967 and of different newspaper articles. We turned up a clue that had been published in a newspaper 10 years after the disappearance and no one ever paid it any attention. So I, I don't want to give away a spoiler, but basically this clue was found by one of the best Indigenous trackers in northern Saskatchewan back in 1967. So the person who had engaged him to be part of the search wrote down what that man found. And I had read that article three times. And then one day I literally read the article again and I thought, my God, that's it. Like that's the clues published 10 years later about where they could be in the lake. So there are very specific clues that were left on the side of the lake. So they wouldn't have been there 10 years later. And they certainly weren't there when we went back two years ago, but we were able to track down where the clues were and then we pulled together other information that also suggested that there may have been bodies buried in the lake. So when that information has started to come together, I called Eric because Eric is the outdoors man and I said, look, Eric, is this feasible? Can we go to this isolated lake in the subarctic of Canada? Where do we stay? Can we get a boat? How do you search underwater? So I, I Googled things like how do I search underwater for dead bodies? There is a man in the United States who lives in, in Idaho who basically specializes in precisely that. So he uses sonar equipment to do that. And I contacted him and we got good advice about the feasibility. Then I went back to Eric and he said, yes, you can definitely do it. He knew of a fishing lodge at that lake, which would have boats. So I called Deanna and I said, Deanna, we are the only people who are ever going to do this. Do you have any money that you could use from academic funding? Because it's a very unusual case for an academic. You know, we're investigating a cold case murder and the lake is isolated. It's going to cost a lot of money. We would have had to hire a sonar team to, to come with us. Deanna found the money. We hired the sonar team. We went to the lake. We did the scan and we found more clues. As you say, we're not going to have a spoiler here. You did find some important information. I'm interested in whose interests are being looked after by not pursuing this case further. Back in 1967, whose interests were being looked after? There's a few different things in there. Jim Brady was under surveillance. We are 100% sure at the time, as were other prominent communists in Saskatchewan at the time. So that means that when he went missing, first of all, the people who were supposed to keep an eye on him would have thought, my goodness, what's happened? Like we're supposed to be following this man, keeping tabs on his daily life, and he's vanished. We need to do something about this. But I think the other side of that is he was famous for being a troublemaker and he had enemies everywhere in politics, in the church and in big business. And there would be many people who would be very happy that he had actually disappeared. There are a few questions for the police. One is if there had been two white men who had disappeared, would the police have put in more effort 
and spent more money on it? And I think the answer is yes, they would have. You know, we know that in Australia, there has been a difference in the way that missing persons cases have been treated historically. And it's the same in Canada and certainly back in 1967. The other point to make is that the police, having convinced themselves that they probably were lost and had died, would have felt a sense of relief And then the other side of that, of course, is the community felt the complete opposite. These two men were really linchpins of the community and of the broader um, provincial community. And they were desperate to either find them alive or find their bodies and certainly resolve what happened. There were a couple of phrases, I guess, that really struck me. One is tracks in the snow. Can you say something about that? Yes. So we know the date that they were dropped off at the lake and we know that the next day a snowstorm came and they were in their tents and Jim Brady managed to make a radio call. And then we we think the next day they went out for a short excursion and then they disappeared on that short excursion. But the, the tracks in the snow is about there were no tracks in the snow around their tent. But also their camp was beside the lake. And of course, lakes, unless they're frozen, don't leave tracks. And that opened up the theory that someone on the lake had actually approached their camp and possibly enticed them into his boat. Or if something had happened when they were away from their camp, somebody who had also been on the lake saw them. And we will never know exactly what happened. But when we thought that actually the lake was the avenue through which a possible assassin approached them, that really opened up the possibility that the lake might also be where their bodies would be found. What are you hoping this book will achieve? We do hope that it will rekindle interest in the case to the point where the police decide that they should fund a, another search on the lake using their own equipment and their own budget, which they have not been willing to do so far. But given Jim Brady's stature as a, an activist and a scholar for Métis people, but Indigenous people generally, his disappearance was this really missing link in the continuity of his legacy. We think that focusing on the mystery of the disappearance itself has actually opened up opportunities for new scholars who will revisit Jim and Abby and what they were trying to accomplish in their lives and then move forward that, with that by looking at their writings and what they had achieved. So we're confident of the circumstantial evidence we found that there was wrongdoing, foul play involved and where they are. And as a person with a background of research in mining industries, is there any connection there, do you think? We could not find the evidence that would tell us definitively that there was a business connection. But actually, part of the problem with not being able to do that was because Canadian law actually makes it very difficult to find the beneficial ownership of companies. And what that means is the owners who really benefit. So that is who are the secret owners of a company. And Canadian law protects beneficial owners. It does it deliberately. It does not need to go on the public record and those records do not need to be released. So we also hope that this book sheds some light on those laws, both provincially and federally, that actually get in the way of researchers trying to do very practical things like not just demonstrate if there is a connection for reasons of solving a a missing persons case, but also in saying, well, that there is no connection if there was no connection to clear the names of those people who have been implicated. So if people are interested in the book, I know it's just been published. Where can they get it? So they can order it through independent bookshops. They can also order it through Dimmix or the usual places online. And we will have an online virtual launch of the book at 11 a.m. on Friday, the 13th of November, Melbourne time. And to find that link for the online launch, Google Eventbrite Cold Case North Launch. And that should take them to the right page. So then they just register and they'll get the link. Michael Nest, researcher and writer. 
and one of the authors of Cold Case North, a story that shows that the struggles of Indigenous peoples continue around the world, as well as here in Australia, something we're very aware of on this NADOC week. Here's Canadian-American Cree activist, born in Saskatchewan, the singer-songwriter Buffy St. Marie, with No No Keshegesh. And she tells us that in the Cree language, Keshegesh means greedy guts. Here's Buffy St. Marie. Oh, man. 
And that was Buffy St. Marie, Cree singer, songwriter, and activist with No No Keshegesh, or No No Greedy Guts. And she's going to be in Melbourne next year, which is 2021. I can't believe that's coming up so fast. But she'll be performing at the Melbourne Recital Centre on April 1st. So save your pennies and get a ticket to see this absolute legend. Tune into the 2020 Beyond the Bars CD launch on air Thursday the 12th of November. Despite the lifting of some COVID restrictions, we'll be launching this year's CD on air and online. This broadcast event will feature highlights from the July broadcast and officially launch the 2020 CD. Order your free copy of the CD now from 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2020. Been locked up for the last five years, and I always run in the family in here. There's that that many, that much of my family in here. It's not funny. This is the point. Not only in here, any damn fellas too. You know what I mean? So, and there's a lot of women, Aboriginal women, locked up to it at the moment. It's not decreasing in the last few years. It's just more or less increasing. Just doesn't make sense sometimes, you know. Tune in on Thursday, the 12th of November, at 2 p.m. for the launch. You're listening to the Monday Breakfast Show on 3CR. I'm Ella. I recently came across a video that I find quite extraordinary. It features Joe Anderson, King Baraga, an activist, leader, and proud Aboriginal man. And the footage shows Joe in 1933 calling for Indigenous representation in Australian federal parliament. I was surprised when I saw this video, not by the content. Aboriginal Australians have, of course, long been calling for representation in almost every aspect of our country, and continue to do so to this day. But I was surprised that this historical record exists today. I decided to find out a little more about Joe, and I thought I'd share it. Joe is directly descended from the Northern Darrell, traditional owners of the Georges River area, and son of Ellen and Hugh Anderson, outspoken activists themselves who owned a section of land in an area of Georges River called Saltpan Creek. In the 1920s, a man named William Rowley brought the block of land next door, and together they created Saltpan Creek Camp. It was freehold land and not a mission or under any government control, and became a refuge for Aboriginal people who escaped from the Protection Board control, which became increasingly important as the New South Wales state government was becoming increasingly oppressive. Joe was involved in the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, and he was known for talking to newspapers or talking on a soapbox at the markets calling for land rights and an end to the removal of Aboriginal children. Once quoted as saying, it quite amuses me to hear people say they don't like the black man, but he's damn glad to live in a black man's country all the same. And at Saltpan Creek Camp, where Joe was filmed standing, calling for recognition in 1933. Joe was one of the first Aboriginal men to use film and cinema to advocate for the rights of his people. And this video was distributed by Cinesound News, and broadcast to audiences across the country at the time. The Baraga Foundation described Joe as someone who refused to be depicted as a relic from the past, nor did he make any concessions to the British, who had invaded his country nearly 150 years before. So let's take a listen to Joe. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that this piece contains the voices of deceased persons. 
I am calling the survey of all the natives of New South Wales to send a petition to the king in an endeavor to improve our condition. All the black man wants is representation in federal parliament. There is also plenty of fish in the river for us all and land to grow all we want. 150 years ago, the Aboriginals owned Australia. And today, he demands more than the white man's charity. He wants the right to live. That was Joe Anderson, King Baraga, an activist leader and proud Aboriginal man, calling for representation in federal parliament back in 1933. And if you want to see the video and find out more, head to the Baraga Foundation website, www.baraga.org. Let's take a listen to some Leah Flanagan. This is Bluebells. Bluebells are everlasting 
That was Bluebells from Leah Flanagan. You're on 3CR and you're listening to the Monday Breakfast Show. I'm Ella and I'm very excited to be back in the studio live for the first time here with Patty. How are you finding it, Patty? <laughs> oh, very exciting, very stressful, but yeah, it's so good to be back and coming to coming through the airwaves live on a Monday morning rather than listening to ourselves in bed. Yes, a bit more of a thrill than uh, listening to the podcast a few hours later. <laughs> but yeah. you've uh, got the tough job behind the panel, so you're going to have the brain and your hands working at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and next up we, we are going to revisit an interview that we ran back in July originally during the early days of this second lockdown. We spoke to Damien Webb, who's a Palawar man from the State Library of New South Wales, about the exhibition Eight Days in Kamei, which seeks to reframe that mythologized landing of James Cook at Kamei or Botany Bay back in nineteen uh, back in seventeen seventy. Here's Damien Webb telling us about that exhibition and how it came to be. So the Eight Days in Kamei exhibition opened just this week. Originally it was scheduled to open in April to coincide with the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the arrival of Cook and the Endeavour, um, but has had to be postponed due to, to lockdowns and COVID. Uh, the basic idea of the exhibition is to re-examine what happened in the eight days that um, Cook and his crew were on the shores of Kamei at Canel, uh, what's now called Botany Bay, uh, and to re-examine that from the perspective of, of the Gwigal men and women that were living there. So taking a look at the legacy that that eight days has left, as well as trying to address some of the, the myths and misconceptions that have kind of accrued around that history over the years, uh, particularly in light of the fact that as Aboriginal people, we haven't really been given a lot of right of reply into how that history is talked about or how that legacy is protested. So really about staging a little bit of an intervention and, and re-examining exactly what happened in those eight days and as well as the context that that history usually gets told in. So it's looking back at the same um, original colonial materials, so the journals that were recorded by Cook, Banks, Parkinson and other members of the Endeavour crew, um, but balancing that with uh, oral histories from Gwigal and Darawal families and families that have lived at La Perouse for many, many generations, as well as with legal knowledge of plants and animals. So really trying to point out how little um, these European men actually managed to, to learn or understand in the eight days that they were there. Yeah, because for, for most of the last 200 years or so, the way history has been taught and understood in Australia has been pre- predominated by white voices and, and interpretations. Uh, it does seem more recently we've seen more books that recognise Indigenous knowledge and history and culture. What do you think the importance is of having an exhibition like this that's historical and visual and interactive um, and drawing on so many sources to uncover the true story? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, exactly as you said, this, there's a very specific version of, of this history and Cook's arrival that has been told and retold that isn't isn't really necessarily based on fact either. Um, you know, we've, we've had very very high up political figures that talk about him circumnavigating the continent. Um, so really, for me, it's the Aboriginal perspective. So, you know, Bruce Pascoe's book and, and other people's work recently that are trying to remind um, predominantly white Australians, but trying to remind all Australians that Aboriginal culture was sophisticated, that, that we did have technology and agriculture and 
and specific laws and, and a society, not just this, this kind of idea that we were, uh, as Banks described, as naked and treacherous and, and just wandering around waiting to be discovered. So I think those stories have been told, but they're always told on the, the fringes of what is considered to be the mainstream history. And as a result, it's very easy for people to dismiss it, um, whereas now we have a major sandstone institution um, really attaching itself to this idea, really saying that we need to be looking beyond one version of history. We, we know that we can't build history based on one side or one source, um, and instead we actually need to go back and look at this as a human event that happened to human people, not as, as something that, that happened to kind of characters in, in a mythologised version of history. And I understand that the exhibition has struck a raw nerve with, this, with some people who are sort of connected to that old myth of James Cook discovering Australia. What has that reaction been like? Yeah, I mean, the online we launched an online version of the exhibition in April um, because we weren't able to open the physical exhibition then, and there was um, there was some pushback that there is a very real exposed nerve when it comes to this history. Um, I think Australia. We like to think that we're maybe a little bit less racist than we actually are. <laughs> and you can ignore it a lot of the time, but when you when you touch on those nerves, when you question the need for, oh, we've seen it recently with the statues, even the slightest beginning of a conversation, a critical discussion about legacies and power and symbolism and colonialism tends to kind of elicit this knee-jerk reaction that you're trying to destroy history when, you know, I work in a library and I'm a nerd. I love history. I love even these old wives' documents. I love them. But the assumption that anybody trying to open up conversations around this is actually trying to destroy something, you know, I think is a very bad faith argument. You know, I think history is always constructed and the way that we build this legacy has been deliberate. I mean, the paintings that started coming out in 1902 showed Cook planting a flag at Botany Bay and motioning to, to stop his men shooting at the natives. Neither of those things happened. He Cook actually shot first out of his men and there was no flag planted at Botany Bay. But it has become what people think is the true version of history. So even when you go back to point out that Cook didn't actually say that or Cook actually said the opposite, people think that what you're trying to do is destroy something when what we're trying to do is create something. Uh, you mentioned the statues, and here's a quote from uh, an open letter published in the Saturday paper in June about relocating the statue of James Cook um, from Hyde Park. Our museums enable the retelling of important stories in new and relevant ways, keeping our histories alive so we can imagine a future that is equitable and just for all. The full history of Cook should be known, which is why a museum and not a public park is the most appropriate, appropriate place for this statue. Do you feel in a way that this exhibition does that in our own minds? It, it removes Cook from being a celebrated figure central to Australian history and and uh, places him somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think that was part of my intent as an Aboriginal curator was how do we tell this story without it being just Cook's story? So obviously Cook is a character in the story, you know, and a fairly major one, but it doesn't have to just be Cook's kind of great story of, of his discovery and his accomplishments, when we focus on that, we completely eclipse everything else that was happening. That this was an event that was momentous for the Gwegel people, that they 
saw this thing coming up the coast and then came to meet these men and then, you know, were shot at and, and spent eight days trying to stop these men moving further in on their country. That their oral histories and the stories that they've passed down talk about the ship, they don't talk about Cook. This weird assumption that, that everyone knew Cook was on that boat. Cook didn't introduce himself by name. You know, nobody knew that that was Cook or the Endeavour. What was significant was that this was the first time they'd seen a ship, the first time that they'd seen a gun, the first time they'd seen these white Europeans. And that gets completely lost when, when all people want to do is tell a story about Cook, um, which I feel is, is reductive and isn't as interesting as the story as a whole when you start bringing these other pieces together. Um, I've, I've had a look at the uh, online version of the exhibition and I encourage any of our listeners who are interested in doing that to have a look too. Um, but it seems like it might be quite a while before any of us stuck south of the border can come to visit. But could you give out the details anyway for the exhibition and how long it's running for and when we can attend if we can get into New South Wales? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're not going to be letting anyone from Victoria into New South Wales for a little while. (laughs) (coughs) But uh, the exhibition is actually open until the end of February next year. So we are hoping to ride out um, kind of possibly even the next lockdown. So it is it is going to be available um, yeah, until the very end of February 2021. Uh, and it's open every day of the week um, at the moment. But, um, yeah, people can visit the online exhibition. All of the same material is in the online exhibition. Um, but, yeah, if you are able to safely and responsibly, um, definitely encourage people to, to come and visit the exhibition at the library. That was Damien Webb from the State Library of New South Wales letting us know about that exhibition. And if you would like to visit the virtual version of the exhibit, then you can go onto the State Library of New South Wales website. We first aired that interview in July during the early days of the second lockdown, and we just wanted to revisit it now as it looks like the border will soon open. Um, And if you think you'll be heading up that way, you should definitely go and visit and otherwise definitely check it out on the State Library of New South Wales website. Uh, And next up, we've got Archie Roach, Let Love Rule. Oh, when darkness overcomes us And we cannot find our way Although we keep on searching For the light of day And we hear the children crying And we don't know what to do Gotta hold on to each other And love will see us through Let love Oh, I cover up my ears So I can't 
cannot hear the voices of hate and the voices of fear. Cannot see what's happened to this country that used to be free. country every rock and every tree the grasslands and the desert the rivers and the sea now you know I love the people wherever they are from yes I love all the people who call The wonderful Archie Roach with Let Love Rule, such an important message. And now we're going to look at an interview I did um, a few months ago. And it's if you've been following the Raise the Age campaign, the push to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 years of age in Australia, you may have signed some petitions along the way. I know I have. I'm sure you'll remember that when the Council of Attorneys General met in July this year, They failed to commit to raising the age at which children can be locked away in a prison. And, of course, we know many of those children are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. So just after that happened, I spoke to Chris Kinane. He's a professor in criminology at the University of Technology in Sydney. He's been doing research on you know, into Indigenous peoples and the law, juvenile justice for like many years. I remember reading his articles at least 15 years ago. So a lot of experience, and he's been involved in this campaign. 
So I began by asking Chris how he first got into this area of research. I used to work in the uh, youth sector. I used to work with homeless children uh, in Western Sydney. It was uh, through community work rather than academic work that I became interested in it. So can you tell me when the current age of criminal responsibility was established? The current age was set beginning in Queensland in mid-1970s. Because youth justice is a state and territory responsibility, it has varied across the states and territories. So Queensland set the age at 10 in the mid-1970s. New South Wales was the next state after that. And gradually the other states and territories changed their age as well. And all of them went for the age of 10? Yeah, so over the last 20 or so years, we've had a standard age of 10 across everywhere in Australia. When I first heard that the age of criminal responsibility was 10 years old, I thought we were going to go back to the the 1800s. I thought it would be some British law. It was seven under the common law. It was seven in Australia until the beginning of last century. New South Wales, I think, was the first state to raise it from seven to eight in the 1930s. And then in the 1970s, it was raised to 10. So that, in fact, was an improvement over what existed before. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. At the time of colonisation, it was seven. And we know from the records that it was often well, I don't know if it was often ignored, but it was ignored. We know that children at the age of five were transported to Australia. And in fact, some children under the age of seven were executed in Australia. So even though the common law at that stage was seven, even that wasn't always adhered to. So we have moved, but, you know, it's been pretty slow. Chris, given your background working with young people and also your research, what does this look like on the ground in the community that the age of criminal responsibility is 10 the biggest problem is really that we're bringing in children that are age 10, 11, 12, 13 into the youth justice system and not thinking about alternative ways of responding to behaviour or to needs that may exist there. The very narrow and punitive approach. Well, it is, and it's really out of step with what's happening in other countries, particularly in European jurisdictions. The average age across Europe is 14. You know, there are several states in Europe that have 15 or higher as the minimum age. The UN can Committee on the Rights of the Child has recommended 14, and Australia has really been criticised by the UN now for more than two decades because of its low minimum age. There is a, a real need to change this to do something about it. You said earlier that this is a state-based issue. I'm just wondering where the responsibility falls for this change. Does it fall to the states? Does it fall to the federal government for leadership? It's preferable to have a common age. That's why the Council of Attorneys General had picked up on this issue to look at a common approach. It doesn't require federal leadership, but obviously if there's federal leadership, it greatly assists the situation. The downside of a common approach, though, is that inevitably you're held ransom to the most conservative state to get change. At the moment, I think we're still hoping that there will be a common age, that all the states and territories will agree to that. However, if they can't agree, then there is absolutely nothing stopping any one of the states or territories to make this move. If we can get one to move, then others will gradually follow. Part of the problem has been that the federal government has not been particularly supportive. Christian Porter, as Attorney General, has publicly stated that he is quite happy with the system the way it is. I think we do need a much clearer statement of support from the federal government. Otherwise, it may languish you know, with nothing done for a number of years. How many young people are we talking about uh, between 10 and 14 who might be in this situation? Over the period of a year, 
we have just under 600 children that under the age of 14, between 10 and 14, that are placed in youth detention. And we have about 700 placed on some sort of court order, supervision order. Yeah, a little under over a 12-month period. And then separate from that, again, we have several thousand young people under the age of 14 who go to the youth court or children's court uh, over a 12-month period. So it affects a large number of young people. What are the backgrounds of the young people? Are some more affected than others, some groups? Yeah, absolutely. We know that of those that go through the de- into detention and of those that are placed on orders, uh, 65% of those children will be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. About 28% of the adult prison population is Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, where we're talking about in the under 14-year-olds, 65% are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So it's actually much worse than it is for adults. So what are some of the better options for meeting the needs of young people? There's a range of a range of alternative approaches. Yeah, for minor offending, it might be something like a restorative justice meeting between the victim and the offender. There may be need for family support. If the child is unable to go back to the family, then there may be a need for other forms of support. So it depends a lot on the specific nature of the young person. I think what's important to recognise is that we know that the youth justice system or the the criminal justice system, is dramatically unsuccessful. It's not as if we can say, well, look, we don't have a problem. We're doing things really well. Why do you want to change it? I mean, it's quite clear that what's happening at the moment doesn't work well. We know that the younger the age of a child coming into youth justice, the more likely they'll stay in the system and progress on to the adult criminal justice system. So we need to do things better. Yeah, and clearly from what you're saying, these are complicated, complex issues that need more thinking through, more sensitivity to families and children. Who are some of the people and groups supporting the change? It's a broad range. There's Aboriginal organisations within the Change the Record umbrella group. Amnesty International has been highly active in helping organise the campaign. Professional groups, in particular the Royal Australian College of Physicians and the peak legal body, the Law Council of Australia. I mean, there's a broad range of support among non-government organisations, community-based organisations and professional bodies. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Chris Cunane from the University of Technology, Sydney, about the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in Australia from 10 to 14 years of age. And given the strong evidence to support raising the age, I asked Chris who opposed it. I think there's a lethargy in terms of politicians and a reluctance to look at progressive change around criminal justice issues. I mean, it's much easier to reduce everything to a problem of law and order and the need for a punitive approach. And quite honestly, a willingness by politicians to completely ignore the information that we have around the need for change. The only other group really that has been opposed to a change has been the police and I think they see it as a reduction in their powers. They want to be able to arrest and charge 10-year-olds if they see fit. But I'd suggest is is probably open to change because there are plenty of police around who don't particularly relish the thought of dragging 10-year-olds into the justice system. So it would be some groups of police but not all police from what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, police associations have been opposed to any change. But interestingly, the vast majority of professionals that work with young people, lawyers or magistrates, people who run detention centres, who work in detention centres, also the need for a change. Other research that I've done is involved interviewing detention centre managers, people working in detention centres, and I've quite honestly never met anyone who supports the benefits of of locking up a 10-year-old in detention.
In your paper, you referred to an important meeting. You said it was the historic opportunity to change the way we treat, and I'll quote, vulnerable and marginalized children. What happened at that meeting? Well, the communique that was put out has about three lines on it, uh, three sentences. And basically it says that the um, Council of Attorneys General deferred any decision and put it off to a meeting next year while they consider what changes might be required if the law has changed and 10 to 13 year olds inclusive uh, are no longer brought into the justice system. So basically they deferred making a decision, but certainly didn't close the door on it. Okay. So are you hopeful? Oh, look, I think the change will come. It may not come this year or next year, but it will happen. There's enough momentum there in terms of the international experience. I mean, some of the Scandinavian countries raised the age in the late 1800s to 14, and and we haven't seen the collapse of the social order in Scandinavian countries or Northern Europe. Far from it. There's plenty of positive experience about how this situation can be dealt with better. We do have a few politicians that are at best lethargic or perhaps themselves belong to the 1880s uh, rather than the 2020s. And that leads to my next question. If it is the case that politicians are lethargic, or some at least, is it something that people listening can do to, to kind of shift that a bit? Oh, look, I think just to be involved in contacting politicians and supporting the change, I would see Victoria as one of the states that could lead the way on this. If we can't get national agreement, then I would see states like Victoria, probably Queensland and the ACT, possibly the Northern Territory, as being states and territories that could actually lead, lead the way. Chris Kinane, Professor in Criminology at the University of Technology in Sydney. And if you're watching the news, you'll see that the ACT has moved. The Labor Greens government will prioritise raising the age of criminal responsibility in the next parliamentary term. So Anne Victoria should be looking out because there's an opportunity there for us here too. So now we haven't mentioned, can you believe we haven't mentioned all morning? Here we are live in the studio (laughs) and we have not. And welcome, Alice, because you you just joined us. Thank you. Nice Uh, to be back in the studio. Yeah, we haven't mentioned the US election. Oh, I didn't know. Did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly did. And I just like, I think one of the things that moved me the most over the weekend was hearing Van Jones, a CNN commentator, when he was asked how he was feeling once Biden's win was announced. Uh, and this is in the studio live. It was in the studio live at CNN. And there's just a little pause after the question. And that's Van Jones just. I think, catching his breath. Van, what are your thoughts? <clears throat> it's, um, well, it's easier to be a parent this morning. It's easier to be a dad. It's easier, it's easier to tell your kids character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. Being a good person matters. <laughs> and it's easier for a whole lot of people if you're Muslim in this country, you, you, you don't have to worry if the president doesn't want you here. If you're an immigrant, you don't have to worry if the president's going to be happier to have babies snatched away or send, send dreamers back for no reason. This is vindication for a lot of people who have really suffered. You know, the... the I can't breathe. You know, that wasn't just George Floyd. That was a lot of people that felt they couldn't breathe. 
every day you're waking up and you're getting these tweets and you just don't know. And you're going to the store and, and people who have been afraid to show their racism are getting nastier and nastier to you. And you're worried about your kids and you're worried about your sister. And can she just go to Walmart and, and get back into the, her car without somebody saying something to her? And, 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 and you spent so much of your life energy just trying to hold it together. And this is a big deal for us just to be able to get some peace and, 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 and have a chance for, for, for a reset. And, and the character of the country matters. And, 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 and being a good man matters. You know, I just want my son to look at this. Look at this. You know, it's easy to, to, to do it the cheap way and, 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 and get away with stuff. But it comes back around. It comes back around. And this is a good day for this country. I, I'm sorry for the people who lost. I, for them, it's not a good day. But for a whole lot of people, it's a good day. And that was uh, Van Jones on CNN. And uh, as he was speaking, I felt like he's not just speaking for America. He's speaking for all countries where, you know, people of color, where groups of people are vilified. I mean, uh, I could feel Australia as well, you know, in the things he was saying. We've seen the black deaths in custody. We've seen the silencing of environmental scientists. Yeah, so uh, I think, yeah, anyway, I found yeah. it quite moving. Did did either of you hear that when it was, uh, was broadcast? I didn't hear it when it was broadcast, but, yeah, I think what yeah Van Jones said about basically... Trump allowing racism to happen or encourage, encouraging people who had been scared to show how racist they were before doing that. And I think that's something that if you're white, you don't see. So you can it can be, it can you can pretend or you can convince yourself that it's not happening. Um, but if you're a person of color, you can't. That's your reality. And I think I mean, I'm a, I'm a white person. I don't I don't experience racism in, in any way like that. So I think it, it's yeah, it just hits home also some of those things that we know we don't experience if we're not a person of colour in a country where racism is being encouraged. Yeah. And, of course, historic uh, Kamala Harris as the uh, first woman, uh, black woman who's a vice president. And uh, I found out that um, her family heritage, and I think it's her mother's grandfather, I'm not quite sure, but in India, the village they came from, were having a big celebration. I did see that on ABC, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, that was great. Um, yeah, it's it's so, I, I really hope that uh, the new president and vice president can do something to heal the divisiveness in the country, because Trump's still in there, you know, tweeting. Yeah. I hope they can get him out of the White House and and there can be some real change. Yeah, people I was speaking to in the U.S. Uh, over the weekend, I was back and forth quite a lot. And, of course, on the day of the election count, it was looking like, um, you know, Trump had won. And then very slowly it crept up, and uh, I was wanting to see the moment when Georgia, which has, has such a strong black population, you know, you could see that it kept going up and up for Biden, and you, I wanted to be there that moment when it flipped over mm. and turned blue, and I was able to do that, but uh, I wasn't there for the moment that it uh, actually, th that the win, win was announced, that they, they declared it for Biden, so I did miss, I slept through that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been good, good, a good news week, um, and it's so good to be back in studio with you both. Uh, one one final piece of good news for this morning on Monday breakfast. It's another case of zero zero oh, for I didn't Victoria. Know that. Oh, Yay. that's fantastic! I think so we've that's... only got two or four active cases left in the state. 
Yeah. And that's 10 days. 10 days of zero, zero. 10 days of zero. Yeah. How amazing. Yes, and big congratulations to everyone who did what, you know, what they needed to do and stay home and wear your mask. What an interesting Monday morning it's been. Here's Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.